Welcome to the Lone Mama Book Club. My name is Mara, and I'm a new mom to the coolest little dude, Rowan. Motherhood can be so many things at once. Beautiful, heartbreaking, joyful, frustrating, unifying, and isolating. I created this club to build a community amongst book-loving moms and pave a way for us to discuss some of our favorite or not-so-favorite reads. Our books focus on coming of age, womanhood, and motherhood. My hope is that this community will help make even just one fellow mama not feel so alone. Although our journeys may look different, we are all in this together. So take some new time, grab a book, and let's dive in. Hello, and welcome to the third episode of the Lone Mama Book Club, where we'll be talking about The Four Winds, written by Kristen Hanna. My rating for this book would be a solid four out of five star rating. In this episode, I'll be reviewing my likes and dislikes, a few interpretations, and answer some listener questions. I'll also be deviating a bit from the Lone Mama part, and we'll be having a guest on to discuss this novel with me. My guest is one of my all-time favorite humans and is my husband, Mike. I only recently discovered Kristen Hanna, and she has quickly become one of my favorite authors. Her writing style is direct, thought-provoking, and heart-wrenching. I recall telling Mike that her writing was brutal when I first started reading The Four Winds. That probably doesn't help to sell the book for some people, but I meant brutal in a good way. If you read it, then you know. And if you don't know, I encourage you to read it. And not only because it's a wonderful story, but because my podcast gives away a lot of spoilers. (laughs) Jokes aside, I love Kristen so much that I'll be doing at least two of her books in the first season of this podcast. Both books revolve around topics that constantly make you reassess your beliefs on what is right and wrong, what is justice, and who you think you would become when faced with a certain type of adversity. Fun fact, Kristen used to be a lawyer before she became an author, and I could totally see a strong influence from that in her writing. So what's this book about? This fictional novel is based on true historical events, specifically a time in America's history known as the Dust Bowl. When learning about the Dust Bowl in school, which was longer ago than I cared to admit, I feel as though we spent a very short time discussing it. Before reading this novel, I recalled a general sense of what the Dust Bowl was and a particularly catastrophic event known as Black Sunday. So while reading The Four Winds, I began researching about the Dust Bowl and was shocked to learn that this man-made ecological tragedy lasted for almost an entire decade. A wonderful source of information on the Dust Bowl is the article Dust Bowl through the History Channel. Another one of my favorite interests includes history, so I couldn't help but write a blog post on the Dust Bowl. If you're interested in learning more about it, be sure to check it out on my website. I'll be adding a link to the blog in the show notes. Let's dive in and review my likes and dislikes for this book. Likes. One, the historical detail is on point, and you can tell Kristen did a thorough and heavy amount of research for this book. It actually inspired me to reconnect with my love of history and research the Dust Bowl myself. Two, it's a vivid and soul-wrenching novel that makes you reassess life. I am a sucker for a book that creates an emotional response. 
Yes, there's a time and place for a simple and less emotionally taxing book. But for me, I typically want a book that's going to manipulate my emotions. I want to connect and respond to a novel. Books take time to read, and time is the most precious commodity. For me, if a novel is taking up my time, then I need to feel that connection. Three, there are poignant and deliberate parallels made between this book and the world today. Either that or it's a statement that the world hasn't changed much. Either way, it's a bold statement. There's a conflict between how we live in a human community and how capitalist societies function in the bigger picture. Great powers, either companies or governments that are making decisions in their best interests, have a massive effect on the people. And despite best efforts, these decisions can still ruin lives. For example, let's take how individuals actually started farming in the Great Plains. In the late 1800s, economic crisis and the idea of manifest destiny led people out west. The government encouraged this movement by offering several incentives i.e. the Homestead Act of 1862, Kincaid Act of 1904, and the Enlarged Homestead Act of 1909. These acts encouraged Americans to move westward into the Great Plains by offering hundreds of free acres to those willing to farm in the semi-arid climate. Unfortunately, most of these settlers didn't know how to correctly farm this land, and we all know where that led. Four. I love that this book is about survival, family, resiliency, love, friendship, and above all, motherhood. Honestly, this is another novel that I could go on and on about. Seriously, I have pages of notes on this novel. So as I discuss this book with y'all, I'll have to focus on one specific theme that stood out to me, motherhood. I would argue that the heart of this book revolves around its representation of motherhood and the power and sacrifices that come with it. Now the dislikes. One, the fact that I doubled my tissue budget because of this novel. In all seriousness, this was a major tearjerker. No person, or animal for that matter, was safe. This was a tough read, and the trauma and misfortune felt overwhelming at times. It's a fast-moving book which made the tragedies described pile on quickly and intensely. I felt that at times I was just getting over processing something and then another horrific event was waiting right on the next page. It was hard to digest it all. Two, the similarities between this novel and The Grapes of Wrath by John Steinbeck are extensive to me, and I'm not sure I love that. Obviously, both books are about the same historical events, but there are a few other overlaps between the two. Three, confession. I almost didn't buy this book. I read the excerpt available on Amazon, which is the first full chapter, by the way, and thought, eh, I'm a little embarrassed to say that I thought it started off a little slow. I could totally blame it on the sleep deprivation I most definitely had at the time, but it's important to own it. I felt how I felt, It's also, however, just as important to note that the first chapter is laying a strong foundation for the themes that run through the entire story. The very first chapter dives into Elsa's divide with her family and how her childhood deeply shaped her idea of self. Here's a direct quote from the third paragraph of this novel. There was a 
pain that came with constant disapproval, a sense of having lost something unnamed, unknown. Elsa had survived it by being quiet, by not demanding or seeking attention, by accepting that she was loved but unliked. The hurt became so commonplace, she rarely noticed it. Elsa's childhood experiences mold her character. Throughout most of the novel, she firmly believes that she's unlovable, that it's better to be unseen and unheard. This is a powerful idea for all the parents and guardians out there, that how we react, communicate, and relate to our children shape them for the rest of their lives. It shapes how they view themselves, and it shapes their relationships, including friendships, professional relationships, lovers, and even future children. We see such a strong character arc for Elsa. She goes from being incapable of loving herself or standing up for what she wants and needs to a woman who fights for a better world, a woman who understands that love remains. All Elsa wanted was to have an impact on the world and to love and be loved in return. Such a relatable desire for me, and I'm sure a lot of us out there. This is exactly what she gets in the end however bittersweet that ending is. As I previously stated, since I could go on and on about this book, I'm going to focus on just the theme of parenthood and more specifically, motherhood. There are therefore a few scenes and events that I want to walk through with y'all. So this story is told from two individuals' perspectives, Elsa and later her daughter, Loretta. It starts in 1921, where Elsa is a 25-year-old spinster. Good to know that apparently I would have qualified as a spinster at the ripe old age of 25. Anyway, up until this point, Elsa has lived a sheltered and lonely life. When she was younger, she became ill from rheumatic fever. The doctors told Elsa and her family that her heart was damaged from the fever and she must not overexert herself. Elsa's parents proceed to take Elsa out of school and sequester her at home. As you can gather from the previous quote, her family did not think too highly of Elsa to start. So unfortunately, Elsa grows up alone and without completing an education. She had to watch as her sisters went out into the world and got married. She tries to talk to her family about her wants and dreams, but she's completely ignored. To combat that feeling of isolation, Elsa long ago turned to reading for solace. She dreams of having her own life. Little does she know that the day will come and all from a simple bolt of red silk. Without rehashing the whole book, one fateful night, Elsa braves a night out on the town. And it's here that she meets Raffaello Martinelli, or Raffi. Side note, I could totally be pronouncing his name wrong. I say it one way, Mike says it another, and I think the audiobook says something completely different. But it is what it is. I'm sticking to how I've been pronouncing it in my head, and I apologize to any Italians named Raffaello. Raffi seems charmingly innocent. He is only 18 years old, after all. And Elsa ends up going with him to a secluded place where they end up having sex in the back of his truck. It always shocks me how little sex was discussed in the past. Elsa had no idea what to do, what was happening, or what the ramifications of this could be. Anyway... They end up meeting a few more times until it becomes obvious that Elsa is pregnant. Her parents find out and they demand to know who ruined her. Ugh, that term. Elsa is literally disowned and dumped on the Martinelli's doorstep as a result. The Martinelli's world is ripped apart. Rafi was supposed to leave for college in literally three days. 
he was also engaged to another woman. Of course, all that changes. His parents, Tony and Rose, are devastated. They are immigrants from Italy, and Rafi is first-generation American and their only child. They had such big hopes and dreams for him, which how contrasting to Elsa's parents, who literally kept Elsa locked away and forgotten. Elsa attempts to leave after being dumped at the Martinelli's farm, but Rose stops her. Rose has a few requirements before accepting Elsa into the household, and Elsa has a request of her own, that the child be loved. Rose states that she will love the child, but doesn't say anything about loving Elsa. So Rafi and Elsa end up getting married, and we see nine months go by. Elsa learns so much around the house and the farm, and really starts to blossom amongst the golden wheat and blue skies. On a spring day in March, her daughter, Loretta, is born. Rose helps Elsa through the labor and delivery, and the bond of motherhood unites them. From that day on, Rose and Elsa are family. I love that motherhood is a complicated but connecting theme throughout the entire novel. I feel like motherhood is all at once an isolating and bonding experience. Is it a coincidence that Elsa's relationship with her mother was so isolating and her relationship with Rose ends up being so strong? Maybe these relationships were written in part to reflect on that very idea. I've said this in other episodes, if you've been listening in, but motherhood is not solely the experience of birthing a human being. It's a bond. And I think that Elsa and Rose's relationship speaks to that. Also take Elsa's relationship with Rafi. So many unspoken emotions and needs between the two of them. What really stands out is Elsa's strength compared to Rafi's. Rafi turns to daydreaming and drinking when times get tough. He eventually abandons his home, parents, wife, children, never to be heard from again. Elsa and Rafi have a conversation shortly before he leaves. Rafi is in the barn and he's crying and he says to Elsa, how can you not break? Elsa responds with, because the kids need us not to. Rafi sighs, and Elsa's left feeling like she's somehow said the wrong thing. Yet, Rafi doesn't seem to understand. He doesn't understand that mothers, even when faced with the impossible, will go on. We will give everything we have for our children. Such isolating strength that can be. Yet Rose and Elsa have come together over that same strength. They have intertwined their very lives, bore the weight of the despair, heat, dust and hunger and kept moving forward and fighting for their children and grandchildren. Later, Elsa and Jean, oh Jean, connect through the same strength, motherhood, isolating and bonding all at once. Another scene from the book that speaks to me about the complexities of motherhood is when Elsa has to take her son Ant to the hospital. A dust storm raged for 10 straight days, and Ant became extremely ill. He ends up having a seizure, and Elsa knows she must get him into town for medical treatment. At this point, their horse Milo has just died, and Elsa has no way of pulling the wagon that they usually take into town. She literally finds a wheelbarrow and lays Ant into it. With her bare hands, she grabs the rough handles and starts pushing her son the two miles it takes into town. 
Rose, Tony, and Loretta call after her, but she doesn't even hear them. She's focused on saving her child. Eventually, she stumbles and the wheelbarrow falls. Poor Aunt hits his head on the ground, and Elsa still does not stop. She gathers him up and puts him back into the wheelbarrow, only to finally notice that the skin on her palms has been torn away. Despite it all, she gets ready to push forward, only to have Tony lay a hand on her shoulder. Rose, Tony, and Loretta have caught up to her to help get Aunt to the doctor. They have been yelling and following her the whole time, but it never registered within Elsa. Tony and Loretta take over the wheelbarrow and continue forward. Rose informs Elsa that she went almost a whole mile by herself. Elsa starts to reply to try to excuse away her reaction as if she's almost embarrassed by it. But Rose cuts her off, tells her that she is a mother. Rose reaches down and grabs Elsa's bleeding hands and kisses them. It is the first time in Elsa's life that someone is kissing an injury of hers to make it better. The scene is important because, again, it shows us what a mother's strength allows one to endure. It shows the sacrifices and lines we are willing to cross for our children. We see Elsa push her son in a wheelbarrow for over a mile with shredded, bleeding hands. Never does she think, I can't do this. She continues onward. I know in my heart that even if her family did not come to help, Elsa would have made it into town on her own. More than this, though, we see Rose hold Elsa's hands and kiss them, with blood and all. In society, it would have been a line crossed. For a mother, it is such a tender and loving act. This show of affection allows Elsa to feel comforted and not alone. It helps her continue to go on. The mother-daughter dynamic also seems to be another common trend with Kristen Hanna's novels. Besides Elsa and her mother, Minerva, and Elsa and Rose, there's Elsa and Loretta. Elsa and Loretta have a tumultuous relationship for the first half of the book. It's interesting to see Elsa's old traumas hold her back from saying what needs to be said with Loretta. So many assumptions are made between these two due to lack of communication. If any of us have learned anything from reading and, well, life, it is that assumptions are the worst. I've heard others state that Loretta is an annoying character. I humbly disagree. Loretta is afraid of what's happening between her parents, her family, and her home. She's also at a time in her development where she's craving independence, but still hasn't fully developed a full capacity for abstract thought. What this means is that Loretta may have difficulty at this age with empathizing, because having empathy is actually an abstract thought. Honestly, what a terrible time to be in the first stage of adolescence, because here Loretta is just trying to figure herself out, and the world is literally unraveling around her. Which, under normal circumstances, is how it feels to be a teenage girl anyway. I believe the rage that we see Loretta bestow upon her mother in the first half of this book is from Loretta feeling out of control and scared. This relationship dynamic also serves an obvious purpose, right? The purpose of propelling Elsa's character forward in her own personal development, because we have to acknowledge that this story is a coming-of-age tale for both Elsa and Loretta. Ultimately, they come together and empower each other. Loretta sees her mother for all that she is, and Elsa sees Loretta for all that she is becoming. They reconcile and, in a way, find and save one another. 
and we see for the millionth time just how strong the bond of motherhood, of unconditional love, really, can be. Something I recall as I reflect on this are Rose's parting words to Elsa. Mothers and daughters, we save each other, yes? Yes, I suppose we do. Reflecting on all of this, I can't help but think that this novel was, maybe in part, inspired by the famous picture, The Migrant Mother, taken by Dorothea Lang, who worked for the federal government's resettlement administration. This administration gathered almost 80,000 photos of displaced Americans between 1935 to 1944 to help create awareness around the severity of what was happening in the Great Plains and the West Coast of America during this time. If you haven't seen the picture, which I'll link to in the show notes, it's of a mother holding a baby in her arms while two of her other children curl into her shoulders. The clothes are ragged and the mother, who at the time was anonymous, is staring off into the distance, looking intent and a little tired. Her photo came to be one of the most recognizable images from this time period and was printed in newspapers, magazines, and stamps across the country. She became a symbol of strength and representation during the Great Depression era. I touch upon the details and actual facts surrounding this photo in my blog post, as everything is not as it seems. To me, when I saw this photo after reading the book, and before knowing the true history, I immediately drew parallels between Elsa and this woman. Elsa was determined to do whatever was necessary to take care of her children. She was resilient and strong, despite all the hardships she faced and she fought with everything she had to give her children a better life. So to help create more of a discussion surrounding this novel, let's go ahead and welcome my husband, Mike, to the podcast. Mike was intrigued by my descriptions and reactions to this novel and couldn't help but read it himself. I'm excited to have him on and hear what his perspective is. Hello, handsome, and welcome to my super sophisticated recording studio how you say as we sit amongst our clothes in our closet well at least they're clean clothes well most are it smells great in here (laughs) so thanks for coming on i wanted us to be able to talk about the book Uh, it's such a heavy book that it's kind of nice to sit and have a conversation about it and have someone else's perspective come in and chat about it so in a few sentences how did you like the book well, first of all, thank you for having me on. It's an honor to be the first guest on the podcast and also the first dad on the Lone Mama Book Club. Yes, welcome. A male perspective. I hope I do us justice. <laughs> well, in terms of the book, it was heavy. It's one of the heavier books I've ever read outside of school uh, because I, while I do love a good book, I am not as heavy a reader as you are uh you know as evidence i do have i do have a podcast you do have a podcast about books (laughs) but i was really moved when you told me all about this book after the first time you read it and i was really interested in the story this time period is so tragic and it's one that we just don't cover that extensively in our history courses especially in Mm -hmm. high schools you're always trying to cram in so much Mm -hmm. so i felt like it was pretty glossed over also it was super sad and you're a teenager and want to just move on kind of like loretta (laughs) Uh, but to answer your question i thought it was really good Um, a book like this 
I like to describe as like eating a really rich chocolate cake where <laughs> you you want to just kind of savor it and take these little mouthfuls. Uh, minus minus the joy in this case. <laughs> yes, it's more of like eating a chocolate cake when you're feeling really sad and trying to fill an empty hole in your stomach. <laughs> so going off of that too, uh, I think you mentioned when you finished this book that... This was the first book to ever make you cry. How is that possible? Well, I might have cried when Hedwig died in Harry Potter. Spoilers, kids. <laughs> Who didn't? Who did not cry? Yeah. Somebody told me about Snape. Also, spoilers, kids. But <laughs> yeah, I think this is the first book that made me cry. First novel that made me cry. And it was right at the end. Um and get boy, it got me a couple times the, in the last really 20 pages. I think it really hits different too when you're a parent and oh, you read this. Absolutely. I mean, if I read this book two years ago, it wouldn't have moved me the way it did now. I agree. I agree with that. So to sum it up, I'd say extremely moving piece that tells the story of really strong and complex individuals while having a really great backdrop for one of the most tragic times in American history that sort of goes unnoticed in our history books uh, or, you know, not, not taught as uh, extensively as some other time periods. Mm -hmm. And that I think reflects well on uh, the, the current times in some True. ways. Yeah, we should definitely get into that. But before we do, was there anything that you disliked about the novel? Because I find it really funny, the thing that gets you about the novel. Do so you remember what I'm talking about? Yes. So yeah. towards the beginning of, of the book, and I think we're, you know, we're into the dust storms, of course. And Elsa has, there's just something that doesn't add up to me. And first of all, I, I can't imagine centipedes like crawling through my house all the time. Um, yeah, it really grossed me out. I I, you know, minus the dust, like maybe the dust I would be able to tolerate. But if I have bugs coming out, like I'm out. Yeah. And you know? there's this one moment where a centipede crawls out like onto the counter. Mm -hmm. And Kristen Hanna, our our dear author, puts in the detail that, that Elsa uses two knives. <laughs> not one knife, not a shoe, not a rag. Two knives to chop the centipede up into many little pieces. And... I just seemed bizarre. Uh, yeah, but had, at like, the same time, maybe uh, we think back on it. Elsa was getting out some tension that yeah, she really needed to. That's exactly what I was going to say. Yeah. Maybe she named the centipede Rafa. <laughs> and here we go with the different pronunciations. So I think I mentioned this earlier in the podcast that I pronounce it Rafa and you pronounce it Rafa. Rafa. So, and the audiobook, I think, pronounce it completely different. So, Raffi. Raffi. I think I'm Raffi. I don't know. Now I don't even know how I pronounce well, his name. So, let's we're see how this goes. all Raffi, mm -hmm. who sings some of our favorite songs. Oh, yes. Like It's My Bath Time, oh my gosh. Banana Phone, yeah. all I the classics. It. Maybe that's what I was like thinking. There you go. Apparently. A much better person than <laughs> Martinelli. Facts facts well since we're on the topic of this character why don't we dive in a little bit more and like talk about him a little and something that i can't help but think of 
with this character because we don't hear from him at all ever again is what do we think happened to him? And another thing that I've thought about is what would have happened if Elsa and the kids actually left with him? Have you thought about that? Or do you just not care? (laughs) What's the first part of the question? First part is like, I guess we're just talking about him. Although what more is there to say except that he's a horrible character? Yeah, I think his mother said it all. Um, that he was stupid though and mm-hmm. um, useless and coddled. Um, yeah, he also said it about himself. You know, I, I'm not a huge fan. He's written to be hated. Sure. He's, I mean, he's written to carry the storyline, you know, in the direction it goes in, which is really focusing on Elsa and her character arc, right? True. But have you thought about kind of like what would have happened? if they like went with him i feel like no matter what way the story worked out like he would he would be piecing out at some point that's that's my thought is yeah. i think that eventually you know you can't run away from what's inside of you and he was going to be discontent with wherever he was because mm-hmm. he didn't have the life that he wanted um and which is so sad because this event you know the the thing that changed all of these people's lives together we talked about it it was the rendezvous right the rendezvous um you know it it was a blessing for elsa Mm -hmm. it completely changed her life for the better it gave her a family she talks about that later in the book it gave her her children it gave her love and are you talking about the scene with jean and how they're like they want to go bad drinking yeah yeah exactly Uh, but she mentions it a few other times too. It's like it's kind of they, they they she Kristen wants us to remember that. Mm-hmm. Um, but Rafa views it as something taken away from him. He views it as a lost opportunity, and it actually reminds me of um, another book that I've read called "The Obstacle Is the Way" by Ryan Holiday, uh, which is just all a bunch of uh, like ancient. Uh, wisdom about how the obstacle is the way when when something happens you can try to go around it or run away from it or you can go through it and elsa is a great example of somebody who grits her teeth puts her head down and accepts her life and moves forward and she always moves forward and she's given the strength to do that from the love that she has for her children and and her family her chosen family rathi does not no he does not he chooses to numb the pain with alcohol and try to hold on to those childish dreams that he had and then tries to pursue them and uh they mention at one point when they're talking about people running away from their families that when you're hopping trains you might get split in half i think that probably happened to him because let's be honest he was probably drunk and he's not that bright (laughs) no poor rafi who knows? We'll never know. But Vulture it sounds, food. Ugh, it sounds possible. <laughs> so moving on from that statement, vulture food. Uh, one thing that you mentioned to me um, was that you felt a little left out when I discussed the strength of motherhood, specifically around the statement that mothers will do anything for their children. I mean... For this podcast, I was pretty focused on discussing mothers in this novel. And, you know, I do want to make a point to say that I include 
all parents. Shout out to all parents out there. And I am having you, Afaja, on the podcast. So do you still feel that way? Or like, where did that come from? Yeah, I don't really feel that way anymore. Having read the whole book, Mm -hmm. Uh, that feeling came towards the beginning where everybody was really rallying around each other as a family, especially after Rafa left. Uh, Specifically, like Tony was just an amazing character and seeing Rose and Tony functioning as such an amazing team really just I thought didn't necessarily jive with the overarching message at that point. But now having read the rest of the book, like obviously it's, it just goes on and on and on. And I have, you know, if there's, if I needed convincing, which I didn't, uh, I have, Mm -hmm. I've been convinced that, you know, and just the way that the author gets into so many aspects of motherhood and even, you know, not even just all motherhood, the specific relationship between Loretta and Elsa Mm -hmm. is just such an incredible journey. And I'm sure that all mothers feel some things about that. You know, maybe you don't identify with everything that happened or every little conflict or every moment, but I know that I even felt, you know, I I identified with some of the things thinking about the way that uh, Loretta behaved or reacted to her mom or whatever, when she was in her early teens I think, I think everyone can identify with that. So I guess our next questions to you. Um, were you shocked about what Elsa, Loretta, and Aunt found when they reached California? Because I know I definitely was. I definitely was shocked at first, mm-hmm. but then it made sense. And I think you're referring to, first of all, uh, actually, I was first shocked at how quickly they got to California True. Uh, yeah. and how lush it was right away. I was just expecting them to come over the mountains and then see like more desert. And then, you know, maybe the car will break down and they have to walk the rest of the way. Oh, God, that treacherous like road. Oh, you know? Yeah, horrible. Yeah. Um, and but it was then definitely fast pace when they started seeing the vagrants standing up from under the billboards having Mm -hmm. slept out there and then stopping at the store and um you know being discriminated against Mm -hmm. that you know that was shocking um you you know you kind of forget that this happened and i don't think we learned too much about this part in school i think that we both mentioned i mentioned earlier in the podcast and you mentioned at the start of our discussion here that i mean it was maybe a day or two we spent in school learning about the Dust Bowl. And I don't think that we learned about what happened to the migrants from this. Yeah. And you know, what's actually interesting is uh, when I, I remember visiting family in Texas when I was a kid in the 90s mm-hmm. and people were still throwing the term Okies around. Really? And yeah, it was actually to, de- uh, to describe people from Oklahoma Mm-hmm. And I remember saying like, oh, do you call them dumb Okies? And they said, no, that's redundant. <gasps> wow. And, yeah. I uh, mean, so anybody who's listening, hopefully you guys have read the book and you kind of know a little bit about this, but the majority of migrants that went over to California during the Dust Bowl came from Oklahoma. So any migrant, despite of what state you were originally from, were referred to as Okies and it was a, it was not a good term. Which I think it's pretty ironic that the people that told me this as a kid were <laughs> Californians that moved to Texas 
talking about people who were actually from Oklahoma. So times change, but you know, uh, the name didn't. So another thing that really spoke to me uh, straight from the book was how Elsa, Elsa's just so great. Can we just say that? Oh yeah, no, Elsa's the bomb. So one of the uh, passages that that came, um, if you're following along, it's on page 218, right at the beginning of chapter 19. Uh, Elsa's inner monologue is, she refused to let one man's prejudice hurt them after all they'd been through to get there. She was angry that Loretta and Aunt had experienced such baseless prejudice, but life was full of such injustice. Just look at how her father had talked about Italians, the Irish, the Negroes, and the Mexicans. Oh, he took their money and smiled to their faces, but his words were ugly the minute the door closed. Look at what her mother had seen when she looked at the newborn granddaughter, the wrong skin color. Disgusting. Mm. Mm-hmm. But I think it's a really well-written foreshadowing for what's going to come. And all of that racism, all of that prejudice that we saw in the past and we still see today in many areas is really... And I think a lot of the the slurs like Okies or anything else uh, that you would want to want to use as an example is a term that tries to make people less than human so that you feel more comfortable treating them like they're less than human, which, you know, is hateful. That's hate. At the same time, though, I think that this book does a good job of highlighting what it also is which is a way to cope with how ugly your greed is. And mm-hmm. I think that the growers uh, really exemplified that where their greed and Elsa says this right at the end, uh, talks about how they're not going to stand for their greed anymore. And mm-hmm. they're just squeezing these poor people who have no other option, mm-hmm. just pushing them to the absolute brink and taking advantage of the simple laws of supply and demand as more and more labor flows in, they just keep dropping the wages and everybody knows what's happening. Everybody knows. And it doesn't stop. There's no conscience to that, that force of, of just the economics of it. And yeah, there, that hatred and that, you know, that uh, debasing of people, uh, I think is, a, is, is in some ways their way of, of processing what they're doing. And it's absolutely revolting. Agreed. Agreed. I don't think I could have said that better. So. Oh, I'm sure you could, but I appreciate it. <laughs> I also was going to let it slide and be like, oh, he just remembered that section of the book, but he does, he does have the book out right now. <laughs> I'm closing it now. <laughs> so I guess kind of going off of this too, right? I mean, obviously there's a lot of parallels between this statement and what's happening in the world now and what has happened from that time period onward. But, um, you know, to me, it also kind of brings into question like the American dream, right? And like, who's it, who's it really for? Yeah. And I think they talk about the American dream quite a bit throughout the book and Elsa talks about it in different ways as the story progresses. Mm -hmm. And I think as she comes more and more into her own, she has a different relationship with it and it becomes more about i think the the spiritual and emotional experience and passing on opportunity to her children 
whereas if you compare that to what Rafa thought the American dream was or what Laredo when she was younger thought the American dream was, mm -hmm. it was all about anything is possible and your dreams can come true. And yeah, it's interesting. It and it will happen. <laughs> right. And if you look at the progression of where Tony and Rose came from to where Rafa went to where Rafa's children went, it just goes to show that there's so much pain, suffering, blood, sweat, and tears, and really, really amazing moments too. It's not all, it's not all horrible. Mm -hmm. That gets a couple who came from Sicily to Texas, you know, from from point A to point B. Built a, built a sod house. Right? Yeah, built their house and mm -hmm. a dugout. Mm -hmm. uh, and then have a son, right? Has his all the potential in the world, but miscarried a number of times, went through all that tragedy. And just because they love their son so much and were so thankful for him, they, they actually ended up- They wanted him to have this American dream, right? Yeah. They wanted him to have this good life in this new world. But then Rose says, I coddled him too much. And that's why he turned out like such a jerk. <laughs> and so then he doesn't end up going to well, college. That's mom guilt. Let me just, let me sure. just throw that out there. <laughs> right. Yeah. Mama's out there. Like, it's not your fault. Like your kids are going to live their lives and make their own mistakes. Uh, it wasn't Rose's fault that Rafa wanted to go, you know, rebel against his basically arranged marriage uh, and not yeah. go to college, which I is mean, so crazy because all his parents wanted was for him to go to college. And then all Elsa wanted was for her children to go to college and be the first Martinelli to go to college. What's crazy to me is that he wanted so bad to leave the farm life behind. And this was like his ticket. That was his ticket. Like, that was his like, ticket out. Not a bright boy and or just a very drunk boy. Just didn't. Yeah. He just blew that up. So I think I, I actually, some, I just put something together where like it actually, the goal of sending the first Martinelli to college was delayed by one generation Mm -hmm. because Rafa was an idiot. Mm -hmm. But I think that speaks more to the American dream in reality than any of Rafa's dreams of what the American dream was because it's slow, right? And you're talking about creating generational change and prosperity. You are talking about a slow process. Mm -hmm. And this is, it, it took everything that happened in this book for Loretta to go to college. And well, she for her to even exist for her to even exist. Mm -hmm. And then she probably graduates from college in 1944 or so. World War II is ending and she's a baby boomer. You know, the economy goes through the roof and, and you know, then a bunch of other stuff happens. Uh, mm -hmm. yes. <laughs> but that's uh, I guess that's a story for another book. Yeah, um, definitely. So I guess another thing to ponder would be, you know, again, who is the American dream for? Yeah, and I think there's the optimistic answer, which is that the American dream is very personal and everybody can have their own dreams and aspirations, just like Rafa did, just like Tony and Rose did. Mm -hmm. But it's so much less attainable when you're starting from the less you have to start with. And I think this book actually does a great job in showing both of these scenarios, right? Where... I mean, Tony and Rose came in with nothing, right? But they had a vision and they had opportunity, right? which is key. I think opportunity is key when you're trying to build 
something from scratch. Well, I think also luck is a big part of it. Um, and, and I think it also shows the, the power of, of generational wealth where Stella, uh, Loretta's good friend, um, who was, who was wealthier from town and lonesome tree, they're able to leave a lot sooner mm -hmm. and they're able to pick up and move to Oregon. And it's just a lot easier for them because I think her, her, her grandparents were probably Americans were probably a little bit more well off and just that little bit of a head start generationally speaking gets you to the point where you can have a little bit more of an advantage and you're just ahead of you know, some other number of people. Now they're also behind someone else. Mm -hmm. They would get out West and maybe her father was working for the railroad. Well, there's still somebody who owns the railroad. Mm -hmm. And how did that person get there? And it really does go to show the power of old money and really, you know, if I'm being cynical, the American dream is for people with old money and stories of, of new money are usually low probability. Um, people who make something out of nothing are few and far between. You know, when I say something out of nothing, I mean, make it big. Uh, plenty of people are getting by and, and pulling themselves up by the bootstraps, so to speak, and living a, a, a fine life. Um, but when you talk about, actually, sports are a great analogy for this. I've made your book <laughs> podcast about sports. Oh, so uh, talking about like, for example, in the NFL, you've got, you know, the, the great story of, you know, you've got a, a wide receiver from the inner city who's now making millions and millions of dollars. And that's so good for him. But for every one of those guys that makes it out of a bad situation, there are hundreds, thousands, millions more who don't. And so that American dream of, oh, I can go be a football star or a basketball star or whatever, or a famous actor, those stories are, they're so hard to come by and they've only got harder to come by as we've moved forward in time. Because in order for, like, think about the Wild West. Mm -hmm. The reason there was prosperity to be had in the Wild West was because it was wild. It was untamed. No rules. There were no rules. And it was, you get there first and you take it. Now things like professional sports and Hollywood are well-defined. There are, there isn't as much room for people to just show up and change it. Mm -hmm. But you know, you do still see things come up every once in a while, like Bitcoin or, you know, uh, crazy new opportunities that show up seemingly out of thin air. And there are people that are fast movers and can, can uh keep up with that yeah yeah anyway american dream it's complex man <laughs> agreed <laughs> so let's do one more question and loop back to kind of what we were saying about elsa and how she kind of like kicks bootay on the daily so you know it, it was hard for me to kind of read like how self-deprecating she was for so much of the book and i talked about this earlier you know where it's the childhood trauma it's really based on what she was told every day and shown every day during her childhood but when we we're talking about this like you mentioned oh yeah we're always harder on ourselves than other people are on us usually uh although i would say that 
Elsa's parents were harder on her than anybody ever should be on anyone. Mm -hmm. um, but I think we see, we see that trauma, like you said, carried through the rest of the book where she's constantly putting herself down. You know, what's interesting is we are not our thoughts or our feelings about ourselves or, or anything. And really it's what we do with those, those thoughts and feelings and what, with our life that defines us. And I think if you look back and trace throughout the book, all of Elsa's actions, mm -hmm. she always was what her grandfather said she should be, which is brave. And even though she doesn't believe it, <laughs> sure. She doesn't believe it, but everybody else around her does. And she is brave. She's incredibly brave. Going off of that too, it's almost like she has, I don't know, like some kind of imposter syndrome, right? I mean, we see it when she talks with Jean when she finally makes a female friend of her age, of somewhat of her life experience, right? They're both mothers, uh, where she kind of keeps putting herself down and Jean has to call her out and say, listen, like you've, you've got it all wrong. You know, you're not seeing yourself clearly. And... It reminds me of a post that I saw the other day on Instagram from Adam Grant. Love Adam Grant. Yeah, I know you do. Would you have a fun story about him, right? I mean, so for all of you who don't know who Adam Grant is, he's an, an organizational psychologist and a New York Times bestseller of, what's that book? I think it's Think Again. Think Again. Think Again, yeah. yeah. He's got a couple other books too. That's true, he does. And his post, I think this was the other day, I don't know when it was, but it was on imposter syndrome. And he stated that if you doubt yourself, as someone with imposter syndrome does, right, then shouldn't you also doubt your judgment of yourself? So when multiple people believe in you, it might be time to actually like, believe them. Oh, Adam Grant, <laughs> your wisdom is boundless. I've uh, been following Adam Grant since like maybe 2015. And I actually heard about him through somebody I was interviewing who told me about his TED talk, which was all about his first book, Give and Take. And it was like, are you a giver or a taker? And it talks about how there are different people in groups and organizations. And some people are givers, there are takers, and then there are matchers who mm -hmm. it's like, I'll do something for you if you do something for me. And yeah, great All TED talk. All of which uh, are displayed throughout the Four Winds, I believe. Ooh, maybe Adam Grant is actually Kristen Hanna. That would be very interesting. Big turn of events. I wonder who the woman in the picture is. <laughs> That's the case. <laughs> she certainly has more hair than Adam Grant. Oh, no, no. We don't need to go after Adam. No, I love Adam. He's great. Well, babe. I think that's probably all we have time for. I mean, we could probably sit here and talk for the rest of the evening, but sleep is precious. <laughs> yeah, have fun editing. Oh, thanks, baby. Uh, yeah, well, thank you so much for having me on. It was an absolute honor and a ton of fun. A ton of fun. I, I really loved having a nice conversation. It's kind of, it's different to be talking to more than just the, the desk and our clothes. <laughs> when I'm talking about these books. So I really enjoyed it. And I am going to be doing this again in the future, whether it's with you or, or others out there um, to bring them on and just add a little bit more perspective and it should be fun. Well, thank you so much for having me on. It's been a privilege. 
And I look forward to this episode and all the following Lone Mama Book Club meetings. Thanks, babe. Let's answer a couple of questions I've received from listeners as we wind down this episode. Question one, Grady Hendrix released a new book. Do you think you will read it? Grady was the author of the book I reviewed in episode two, The Southern Book Club's Guide to Slaying Vampires. Gosh, I feel like if I have to say that title one more time. His new book is titled The Final Girl Support Group. If you're a horror fan, you know what this is referencing. If you're not, just know there's a whole movie trope on this. One of my best friends is actually a horror fan and told me she read it and got a kick out of the references that Grady discusses in this novel. I think I'll give Grady the benefit of the doubt and give his new novel a whirl with the hopes of bringing my friend Sarah on to hopefully add a horror fan's perspective to the podcast. If I do this one, it will be a bonus episode that will launch sometime between December and January, maybe. So be sure to follow my Instagram for updates. Question two, the most common question I get, what's the next book? December's book will be The Midnight Library by Matt Hagar. I have a few listeners that have read this book, and I'll be looking to bringing someone on to discuss it with me. The next episode, which is episode four, will launch Tuesday, December 21st. Now, at the end of every podcast, I do reference charities that relate to some of the issues discussed in the novels we read. I'll be adding two to my list today. They are, one, the Family Agriculture Resource Management Services, or FARMS. FARMS aims to protect family farmers from abuse and hunger with legal services. And two, the International Rescue Committee, The International Rescue Committee responds to the world's worst humanitarian crises and helps people whose lives and livelihoods are shattered by conflict and disaster to survive, recover, and gain control of their future. A link to these charities will be provided in the episode notes. In addition, you can find them, along with all the previous ones mentioned, on my website, LoneMamaBookClub.com, under the Donate section. You can also start conversations about the podcast episodes right on my website as well. I love when listeners reach out, so keep doing it. Send me an email or DM me directly. Contact information will be in the show notes as well. If you enjoy this podcast, like, share, and subscribe. Remember that the next episode will be released Tuesday, December 21st, and will cover the Midnight Library. Thank you all for being here. Until next time, later, mamas.